You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Paul Ollinger, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest Podcast. My patient was dying of kidney failure, and I knew I was over my head, so I did what I usually would do in this situation. I called the kidney specialist, and as my secretary paged him, I got on the phone, and he said, hey, Jerry, how you doing? Now, Jerry's not my name. In fact, that's the name of my father, my father who died in 1980. So this gentleman was an older physician and had worked with him years and years ago. And this is something that happened to me fairly frequently in my career. And I look back and my father died when I was eight years old. And at that time, I was enamored with this idea of who he was and what he did for a living. So it was no surprise that I decided to go to medical school. It was no surprise that I decided to become a physician. I am my father's son. On the other hand, a while back, I was looking through some of his old notebooks, stuff he had kept from medical school and residency. And as I was perusing his notes, I realized that I'm nothing like my father. He kept these copious notes, and he was definitely into the details And I was much more of a bigger picture guy. And he loved the profession of medicine and probably if he hadn't died, would have practiced well into his 70s or 80s. And at the age of 45, I decided to leave. So I am my father's son, but I'm also a very different person. And 40 years after his death, I often struggle with this duality, how to be true to my father's legacy and yet forge new pathways of my own. Paul Ollinger is a nationally touring stand-up comedian, the podcaster behind the Crazy Money Podcast, and a former digital sales leader from Facebook. He is also the author of the book, You Should Totally Get an MBA, A Comedian's Guide to Top U.S. Business Schools. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm totally excited for this conversation, and I'm going to start with a complete non sequitur. So bear <laughs> with me for a moment here. Why ever did you name your dog Colonel Tom Parker? I had to go to Google and look up who that was, first of all. <laughs> 
Well, I, I went to college at Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee, and I arrived on August 15th, 1987, which was the 10th anniversary of Elvis's death. So that gives you some indication as to how old I am <laughs> and how young, how, 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 how recent Elvis's death was when I matriculated to, to university. I then spent uh, three years living in Memphis after college, so I developed a fascination with, with Elvis. My, my, not only is my dog named Colonel Tom Parker, who was Elvis's manager, but my son is named Elvis. So we got some deep Memphis blues slash rock and roll roots here in, in the Ollinger household. I had no idea how deep the connection was between you and Elvis, the rock star, not your son. <laughs> well, yeah, it's uh, purely one way. That's, that's <laughs> the connection. Interestingly enough, yeah, Colonel Tom Parker, as I read in Wikipedia, was the business manager for Elvis. He wasn't a colonel. Someone gave him that title, someone mm -hmm. in show business, and had emigrated to the U.S. illegally, I believe, and never left the country after he came because he oh, was afraid of being sent back. So when Elvis went and toured outside of the U.S., he never came with him. And yet he still took half of Elvis's earnings. Yeah, well, he was a savvy businessman. You know, the other funny thing about Wikipedia is you look at the end of the entry. It says something like he died in the 1990s bereft with only a net worth of a million dollars. So I guess he wasn't doing too bad. A million is still pretty reasonable to die with. Yeah, you can, you can be dead a long time on a million dollars. Yeah, for sure. Well, one of the things I wanted to start with is first to give you my condolences. I know your father just passed away. Thank you very much. We, my dad died uh, a week ago at 93 years old. He died peacefully in his recliner, surrounded by four of his six kids. And he had a peaceful and elegant passing from this life. One thing that I brought up in my introduction is my father died at the age of 40. So it was hard not to look at it as a tragedy. Is it easier when your dad passes in his 90s? Does it feel a little bit more natural? I, without question. I, I've never, knock on wood, haven't had significant grief in my life. I've never lost anyone close to me other than my parents really i mean my, i lost my grandparents too but that was a much different kind of relationship and you know when my dad died just the other day the feeling that has been the most pervasive has been gratitude not grief and and it's not that's not a sound bite that's not me trying to be cavalier it's really taking a look at the situation and and recognizing how incredibly fortunate lucky really because we don't choose our parents it's a genetic lottery as as many people have referred to it as and i just happened to pick the right parents who were dedicated and loving and were there all the time for their six kids and at 93 i came home from california to atlanta about 9 years ago and one of the reasons i did that was because i wanted to play a role in my parents old age and having spent a lot of time over those past nine years being part of their caretaking solution, I don't have any regrets. My dad, my dad died, as far as I know, with no regrets. And I don't have any unfinished business with them. And I can, I can feel confident knowing that I played a significant role in taking care of them when they needed me. 
from my experience of dealing with people in hospice and their families, you see that once someone dies, often you have space for one big emotion, right? So you're talking about not feeling as much grief as gratitude, but it sounds like gratitude is something you feel really deeply associated with your dad. And so that makes sense that that's kind of the overwhelming feeling. I could certainly hear it. You put out a replay of a previous episode last week that you had done with your dad a year or two ago. And the intro, it's very clear how connected and how much gratitude you had. Tell me, do you feel like you're very much like your father? You know, I think I'm, I'm, I'm like him in many ways, but also very different than he is in many ways. <laughs> Somebody said the other day, my buddy Yoshi said, he's like, I can see from your interview with your dad how you got his kindness and, and sense of humor. And yet, where does the cynicism come from? And I, was like, <laughs> I, think, I think there's a compliment in there somewhere. I, I would think that. You know, I, we're, we're all a cocktail of whatever DNA and, and, you know, surroundings or the circumstances of our youth and, and, and life. And I think in, in, in the best of ways, I'm like my dad when I'm not thinking about myself, when I'm having a conversation and remembering to be curious about the other person, to be genuinely interested in them, to have no agenda whatsoever in terms of advancing my whatever it is that I care about you know if I can if I can talk to somebody for half an hour without mentioning my podcast then <laughs> then I'm channeling my dad you know but he's you know he's 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 a he's a great man he's a he was a great man he was a humble man and I think I'm more ambitious than he was in some ways that are good in some ways that are less good I think that I'm more skeptical than than he was. He was a very devout Roman Catholic. I'm not faith doesn't play that role in my life. So and and I was listening to your introduction and I'm like, you know, your dad our dads wouldn't want us to be just like them. You know, our dads want us to be our own people. Our dads want us to take what they've given us and run with it and blow them away with Oh, I, I wouldn't have seen that. I wouldn't have done it like that. But that's so interesting the way you did it, you know. And I and I look at my son and I think, you know, some days I when I see the worst, when I see his worst behavior, I'm like, that's me. That's exactly me. That's that's him taking a shortcut in exactly the same way I would do it. But I don't want him to be just like me. I want him to be I want to be him. Yeah, my wife and I were joking the other day that the quickest way to screw up your children is try to make them be like you or make up for all the mistakes you made by trying to teach them not to make them. It's like the best way to mess them up. Yeah. I'd say that's a pretty surefire way to, to, to deny their individuality to try to get them to conform to some standard of success that <laughs> you couldn't achieve. Yeah, definitely. It, you know, you also mentioned skepticism and you know, it's pretty incredible when you look at back at when your dad was born, right? He was the tail end of the greatest generation. So he grew up amidst the Depression and eventually World War II. Mm. It's quite a feat to go through all that and to have some of those qualities you're mentioning, which are kind of this 
outwardly looking, non-skeptical look at life. Yeah, well, the skeptic in me will say that I think the greatest generation is a bunch of horse crap. <laughs> uh, you know, that's a, uh, it's a brilliant marketing device that Tom Brokaw came up with. Not that I don't, I, I like Tom Brokaw, but uh, <laughs> I just, you know, I, the, it, was, it was just another generation. They were human beings just like you and I were, and some decisions were made for them that they had no choice but to go with. You know, if you were 17 in 1941, you pretty much went to war. You know, that wasn't, and, and, and if you didn't, you had some explaining to do. Now, that doesn't make them better or worse than us. It's just that was the circumstances of their, of their lives. And I think, yeah, going through all that stuff, maybe in a different time, they're, they're less self-obsessed because they didn't have the choices. They did things that were asked of them. But, you know, it was also a different time in turn, you know, there's a, I think there was a lot more racism. There was a lot more sexism. There was a lot more things that weren't quite so positive that are easy to gloss over when you, when you're just talking about, you know, the, the historical highlights of that generation. But, but yeah, I mean, I do think my dad was, was some of his best attributes were a product, not just of his DNA, but of his time. And it was a simpler time. It was a less self-obsessed time. Speaking of less self-obsessed, let's talk about money a little bit. Did you guys or do you guys approach money the same way? When you look back at how he conducted himself over his adulthood, did he pass on that money DNA to you? I, I think my dad and I are, are there, there are similarities. Like I, I have on some level picked up some of, some of his frugality. He was a very frugal guy. And I, I do remember as a kid thinking, well, I want to make a lot of money because I don't ever want to stress about money. So let's talk a little bit about you leaving Facebook. You left to retire at the age of 42. What did your dad think about that decision? You know, some of the best decisions, some of the decisions I've made that have gone the best for me have been ones that would conf that confounded my parents. I turned down a full ride at a business school that wasn't the school I wanted to go to, and that blew their minds. One time coming out of business school, I turned down a job making over $100,000 a year because I didn't want to be a, a consultant. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but it, that didn't sound like something I was going to be passionate about. And I ended, up, I ended up going to work for a company that turned out to be the beginning of an amazing career in the digital media business. And those decisions, my parents were like, we don't understand why you're doing this. And so I've generally operated under, you know, do what feels right, go with your gut kind of instinct. I don't think I made a great decision in leaving Facebook, not because I wouldn't have left eventually, but because I didn't have a plan. I, I, I walked away from something instead of walking towards something. And in retrospect, I think I just needed a sabbatical because I was burnt out. We had two very young children. My daughter had been born uh, very prematurely after a brutal pregnancy and I think I was just spent for a variety of reasons, needed a break. And I walked away. And I don't recall what my parents said, but they were glad that I had decided to come home from California and, and, and to live nearby. And, you know, when I think about, when I think about that, that decision to leave Facebook, I would have, if I were to redo it, I probably would have stuck around for a good, long, good while longer, not just because the stock was going to go through the roof eventually, but because you know, I always want to leave a place in good standing and, and with a plan as opposed to just being like, I'm out of here. See ya. And, and I, I don't, I, while I would have done it differently, I don't really regret the decision. 
because I don't know what would have happened if I had stayed. They, they actually had, had asked me to move up to Palo Alto from Los Angeles where I was running the West Coast sales team. And there was, there was certainly more stock that was going to be a part of that move. And I, I, don't, I, I know that I'd have more money probably, but I also don't know about the other aspects of my life. What I do know in the last nine years is that I've had a chance to be uh, a much more involved dad, uh, husband, and son than I otherwise would have been had I taken the next level of, of employment opportunity that was, that was, was waiting there for me at, at Facebook headquarters. You know, as you're talking about the calculations that went into leaving Facebook, I look back at your interview with your dad and especially at his generation in general, and I wonder, do you think he worried so much about happiness the way we do? Like, do you think he had these intense calculations going on about things like money and how long to work and when to start and when to stop? Or is that more of a luxury of our age group? I think it's probably more specific to where we are in life today. One, you know, we're, even though my dad lived in 93, you know, our life expectancy is a lot longer than theirs was. And there's fewer wars today than there were 70 years ago uh, for his generation anyway. But I also think that there was, my dad had, speaking for him, my dad had a a clear understanding what of what happiness meant to him. And he would not say that his goal in life was to be happy. He probably would have said that happiness is sort of an immature goal. But but I think that's I think that's more a function of how you define happiness. I did this recently. I went to the the thesaurus and I looked <laughs> up happiness. Right. And if you look up synonyms of happiness, you'll see things like exuberance, exhilaration, bliss. And then, and, and, and if you were to plot these on a continuum from sexy to unsexy, you'd see, you'd see those words on the left-hand side. And on the right-hand side, you'd see things like contentment, lack of stress. And I think that the immature person defines or conflates happiness as exuberance or exhilaration. The more mature person, by which I mean old, middle-aged and beyond <laughs> says, you know, right. Says, says, you know what I want to be? I want to wake up in the morning and feel good about myself. I want to be, I want to be okay with who I see through the eyes of my kid and through the eyes of my wife. That's, that's what happiness feels like to me. And my dad definitely would have said, if I would have said, dad, do you want to be, is exhilaration, is passion, is, is excitement a worthwhile goal? He'd say, Abs- you're, you, you sound like you're 17 years old. Why would you say that? But if I'd say, Dad, I want to I live a life of, of contentment, he'd say, well, that's a good place to start. Let's talk about what that means. And then there'd be this role of, okay, well, how do you define contentment? What role does work play? Oh, and by the way, you're a mature person. You understand that if you want certain things for yourself and for your family, that you have to work for them, that you have to save them and you can't have everything. So let's figure out that he was a, he was an engineer. Math was a very important thing in his life and math doesn't lie. Let's talk a little bit about contentment with you. If I get the story correct, you discovered at least somewhat your interest in comedy during a talent show during business school. 
was humor a part of growing up for you? Was your dad a funny guy or your mom or was that part of your family upbringing? You know, it's funny. My, my mom used to tell me, I was a very serious student, a uh, very serious kid. And as I sometimes joke, you know, I was raised Catholic by Depression era parents during the Cold War. So, you know, <laughs> it's the trifecta of anxiety. So I think I know the source of that serious kid's anxiety. And my mom used to say, you need to develop your silly side. I wouldn't say that, I wouldn't say that you know, jokerism was something that was encouraged, but both of my parents were wickedly intelligent. My father had a very corny sense of humor. My mother had a very, would, would be closer to the acerbic end of things. And so I think those two things, but, but what they have in common is they're just both incredibly intelligent, insightful people. And to me, the best, the best comedy is, is the insightful stuff. It's the, it's, the, it's the seeing things that other people don't see. It's the kind of thing that when you hear a joke, it makes you stop and see the world a little bit differently. And so in those ways, I think my parents were, were very funny, though. Neither of them had I ever said, I think I want to be a comedian when I grow up. I, they both would have probably discouraged me from that dream or at least <laughs> not encouraged me. Did either of them see you perform? I don't think either of them has ever seen me. I, I'm, I'm, I know they haven't seen me perform stand-up in a club. They've seen me. I've spoken at a variety of things that they've, that, where they've seen me speak in public. So they've, I spoke at my high school and my business school graduation. So they have had the opportunity to see me share my, my, my point of view on the world. Was there ever this moment that, let's say, your dad looked at you and said, you left this great job at Facebook and now you're going to pursue comedy? Like, what's going on here? Mm. Not so much. I'm, I've shared with my father in broad strokes how fortunate I was from a dollar perspective to have worked at Facebook as an early employee. And the number was relatively impressive from a, from a resources versus needs perspective. And so he was like, wow, I guess you can do what you want. <laughs> You know, so, and, and, uh, and, and I have been really fortunate to be able to do what I want. You know, it's, I, I quit earlier in my career, I worked at Yahoo. And in 2005, I, I quit Yahoo to go do comedy full-time. And for two years, I did comedy full-time in Los Angeles at the improvs out there. And then I got engaged and I was like, I need a job because I don't want to be a deadbeat husband or dad. And I went back to work in the place where I happened to go to work was a 250-employee company called Facebook. I didn't go there because I thought it was going to be the next big thing. I went there because friends of mine worked there, and I liked those guys, and I trusted those guys, and I figured maybe I'd put a few bucks in the bank, but nothing anywhere close to what actually happened. So, so serendipity kind of has, has actually allowed me to come back to do comedy. And you famously told your wife, hey, this thing's going to be as big as MySpace. That was, that was how insightful I was. If I, if, you know, if I had been trying, if I had been trying to make money, I probably would have gone to work at MySpace and I'd still be working. Now, it's also, you know, it's not exactly right that you left Facebook to pursue comedy. You actually left Facebook without a concrete plan. Is that right? Yeah, that's so. Sometimes I say I left comedy, I left Facebook to do comedy, but that is an oversimplification. What happened was I left Facebook because I was tired and a variety of other things, and 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 I just was like, I'm just not going to work for a while and see how that goes. 
And for three months, it was amazing. We took trips. I worked out. I read books. And, and life was great. And then about three, four months in, one morning I took my kids to school and I came back home to my office and turned on my computer and there was nothing there. And all of a sudden I realized, oh crap, what have I done? I just gave up as good a job as anybody could hope for, for nothing better. And, and I didn't go into comedy. In fact, I didn't go back into comedy for another couple of years. I sort of, I sort of dabbled. And one night I went to an open mic and told jokes and I bombed so bad that on the way home, I was like, I need to start looking for a job. And I did. And I went back to work for a year as the president of the software company. Turns out the software didn't really work. And so I spent a year trying to, you know, banging my head against the wall. But then I was like, you know what, this isn't what I want to do. I have the opportunity to do whatever I want. And if I'm taking some good enough job, then I'm not being true to myself. And I said, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm going to go home and I'm going to write every day and I'm going to do comedy and I'm going to, I'm going to figure it out. Even if, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to fail until I figure it out. And so that was in 2014, shortly after my mom died, I left that company and I started on this path to give comedy a full shot. That must've been quite a moment of reckoning after leaving Facebook, finding that leaving your job unto itself, retiring early, wasn't going to make you happy. You go work for the software company and then again, realize that that itself also won't make you happy. It must've been a difficult moment and then tie that in with your mom dying. Well, my mom dying was, was not, that was, that was uh, a more brutal departure than my dad's death, but, but, but that's a different kind of struggle that, the, the, the recognition that I wasn't doing what I really wanted to do, I wasn't, the, the tension was that I was doing things that were not in line with, with my true heart. That I, I, as I was leaving Facebook, I couldn't express it, but I was like, I just want to be myself. I just want to get paid to be who I am. And that sounds bizarre, but, but it, it makes more and more sense to me every day. Like, I just want to, I want to do things that I'm interested in. I want to bring my perspective to the world. And I'm not making any money doing the podcast or doing my comedy. Not really. In fact, the harder I work, the more money I lose in comedy. <laughs> you know, I might make 500 bucks, you know, a weekend in Ohio, but it costs me 600 to get there, right? But, you know, I'm doing exactly what I want to be doing and I'm working hard at it. And those motivations, are far more authentic and real to me than the motivation to make more money than I need. And, you know, that's what I want people to understand. And, and when I read about the fire movement and, you know, the retire early thing, I think it's, it's a convenient acronym, but it's not a really accurate statement of what matters. Ret quitting isn't what's important. Living life on your terms is what's important. Doing the things that you want to do that bring you joy, that bring you satisfaction. I read a book almost every week and I get to talk to the author. To me, that's not sexy, but it's highly gratifying. And, you know, when I get to go do comedy, as I said, in Ohio, I'm not worried about whether I'm staying at the Ritz or not. I'm not, by the way. <laughs> I'm staying at some, you know, okay comedy condo or some crappy hotel. And it doesn't matter because I'm doing what I want to do. 
and if and if and if you're sitting there worried about like, well, I'm not flying coach, or I'm up flying coach instead of business class, or I'm staying at not as nice a hotel as I deserve to stay in, you're focused on the wrong things, and so that's what's really pleasing about the 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 reward you get for chasing your dream is basically the right to do that thing. That's what you get. Nobody's nobody's guaranteed to make money doing what they want to do, but if you dedicate yourself to a creative endeavor, then you get to do that thing and you get to answer the question, what would happen if I gave this thing my all? And that's about all you get. In the first part of the show, Paul talked us through his relationship with his father and how it affected his ideas about money and life. After the break, we discuss his decision to leave Facebook and what it means to retire. But first... All right, so most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is... There's something better, and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago, and I knew immediately that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor, and it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com slash E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer-focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. Wish you were in early on some of the best-performing IPOs of 2019 and 2020. With our crowd, accredited investors have access to invest directly, easily, and most importantly, early. Our crowd investors have benefited from our crowd companies IPOing like Beyond Meat or being bought by companies like Intel, Nike, Microsoft, and Oracle. Our crowd's investment professionals leverage their extensive network to review some of the most promising private companies and startups in the world. Their in-depth due diligence includes meeting with management teams and generally comprehensive vetting of deals they decide to make part of their own portfolio. Once our crowd has selected a deal, they offer accredited investors the opportunity to invest alongside them with the same terms. If you're an accredited investor, you can join our crowd for free at OURCROWD.com slash EAI and review the current deals. No payment is involved until you decide to participate in a deal. 
As you review deals, you have access to our crowd's investor relations team, who you can talk to directly on the phone about your personal investment goals. The investment professionals at our crowd have already reviewed thousands of companies, invested hundreds of millions of dollars, closed investments in over 200 companies, and chosen dozens of companies that have made exits. Accredited investors can participate in single company deals for as little as $10,000 or one of our crowd's funds for as little as $50,000. Today, you can join our crowd's investment in Cyabra, an AI-enabled platform that uncovers online disinformation and deep fakes. As disinformation becomes increasingly threatening to global brands, media, and governments, Cyabra reports that it is uniquely positioned to serve this potential $6.1 billion market. You can get in early on Cyabra and other unique opportunities at rcrowd.com slash EAI. If you're interested in investing, you need to join rcrowd. The rcrowd account is free. Just go to ourcrowd.com slash EAI. So I feel like, Paula, I can follow your trajectory and see how it ends current day with comedy. I can't do the same with money. Tell me about the Crazy Money podcast and where the interest in personal finance came from. Well, your personal finance, personal finance, depending on what country, part of the country you're from. <laughs> Here in Georgia, it's finance. You know, it's, I, I've, I've never been interested, as we were discussing uh, before, the, before the recording, I've, I've never been interested in trying to help people find a lower interest rate for their credit cards. You know, this, my, my interest in money isn't about how to, how to make money, how to invest money, or how to save money by clipping coupons. My interest in money came when I made more money than I ever fathomed I could make and quit my job and realized I was miserable because I had separated myself from the social network not the not Facebook, but the, the <laughs> network of real people in my life, next to whom I worked, with whom I tried to solve challenging problems, with whom I commiserated on problems internal and external, who I told jokes with and you know shared laughs with on rides to see our clients, that kind of thing. I basically extricated myself from from the from the work life that I knew. I knocked myself two rungs down Maslow's hierarchy, right? So I, I had pulled. I, I was I was operating somewhere with the with the esteem and uh, belongingness firmly under my belt. And when I quit and was by myself, I wasn't really working and I wasn't with anybody. So I was right back down to. I had my safety needs covered, my physiological needs covered, many times over. But I wasn't doing the things that lead to contentment, and that's having a very robust social network and having doing work that I found meaningful. And I was really surprised about this. And so I started writing and I started reading and I read dozens and dozens of books about money and happiness. And I started writing about the experience of early retirement. What a giant disappointment it, I found it to be. And at a certain point along the lines, I was like, this. I think I could bring my point of view to life in a podcast more effectively than I can in the written word. Not that I'm giving up on the written word at all, but, and so I got into, I, and I started doing the podcast and I was like, I want to talk about what money means, the connection between money and happiness and, and, and all these things that I learned about that I had never heard of. I'd never heard of the hedonic treadmill before I started reading. I had never heard, I'd, I'd never realized that the human brain compares itself 
or, or finds joy not in the absolute amount of resources it has, but in the relative amount of resources it has. And I learned about all these glitches that our brains have that nobody talks about. I hadn't heard anybody talk about because rich people problems aren't, aren't it's not polite to talk about those things, but they're real. And, and it's not just about rich people problems. It's everything from, you know, the, 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 the issue of understanding the nature of how of, of, of money and happiness. So I interviewed Sir Angus Deaton, the co-author of the study that found that there's no additional happiness after $75,000. I interviewed Barry Schwartz, the guy who wrote The Paradox of Choice, who said that, you know what, actually more choices make us less happy. That, that, that to some degree, we benefit from guardrails in our lives, both financial. The need to work is actually a good thing. It actually keeps you from sitting at home and going crazy and have your brain drive you off a cliff because it doesn't have enough to keep it busy. So all these things, all these things were out there that I had never even considered. Yes, you've always heard, you know, maybe your mom said money won't make you happy. And I always thought, yeah, well, you don't have any money. So how would you know? <laughs> you know, so and it turns out she did have a little bit of money. She just chose not to spend it. And I was wrong. And I, I had to go bump into that wall myself, but I thought the topic was a rich one and it's one that I've, I've, I've really enjoyed dissecting over the past 75 or 77 episodes. One of the strangest realizations I came to in my own money journey is to realize that after you have the basics, the only thing real nourishing about pursuing money is the progressing to a goal and making steady progress and feeling good about that. But actually getting to the goal doesn't necessarily make you feel good. And it's definitely helped me concentrate more on setting goals for myself and then finding ways to slowly progress to them. And the the progress itself seems like contentedness a lot more than ever reaching the goal ever did. In this case, more than the money ever did. Yeah, and I think that the, the, the fallacy that I'll be happy when fill in the blank, whether it's, you know, I make a million dollars or $10 million or I get six pack abs finally, or I break 70 in golf or, you know, fill in the blank. It's, it's a never ending way that we use to, to, to put off being okay with who we are. Like, you know, it's, it's just chasing the horizon. And by definition, the horizon moves along with you and you're never going to get there. So all the more reason why it's important to stop and take stock in what is it that you're doing today? What's good about today? What are you going to try to do better tomorrow, but not obsess about? And that's, and these are things, you know, I've like through doing the podcast, I feel like I've actually learned a lot and I've, I've internalized a lot of this stuff and I, I'm not as obsessed about not having a million Instagram followers. I'm not as obsessed about not being able to afford whatever next level of luxury is in my life because it doesn't matter. Whatever the next level of luxury is for me is it's something else for somebody else. And it doesn't, if I got that NetJets card, it wouldn't make me a more whole human being. It would, it would, you know, maybe vacation would be a lot simpler, but like, it's not gonna, it's not gonna solve the biggest issues that are, you know, tormenting my soul or my brain. Do your passions mix well, money and comedy? That's a good question. You know, there really doesn't seem to be 
a ton of complimentary space right now since comedy is essentially closed for you know the past five months and likely for the next year having a podcast to really work on and sink my teeth into has been highly gratifying and it it remains to be seen whether or not i'll translate my podcast listeners into big into big comedy fans because the because the message is really kind of different although they overlap you know we'll see we'll see but i'll I'll, you know i'll say this the the ability to have spoken to the people I've spoken with through the podcast has been highly gratifying to be able to say that, you know, I've, I can, I can talk to the authors that I've gotten to meet the broadcasters, the, the thinkers that I've been able to meet through the podcast has been really, really gratifying. And I, and I've, and, and equally so I've introduced some of these people to listeners who haven't been as obsessed about the topic as I have been. And I'm getting a lot of really good feedback from them saying, this has value. This is worth doing. And that's the kind of stuff that just keeps you going. Like, wow, I'm, I'm actually, I'm actually helping people out. I'm actually like, I'm providing a service and being of service is one of those things that, that really does lead to contentment. When you started the podcast, was your intention from the outset to bring comedy to money or was that something that's just more part of your personality? I, you know, I didn't, it's funny when I wrote that book, you should totally get an MBA. I sat down, this was right after I left that job. And I was like, I sat down, I just started to write and I'm like, who am I? I'm the funny guy that has this background in business. So what should I write? A funny book about business. And as I wrote it, it sort of turned into this, this book about business school but it, it, it wasn't really my desire to try to make money funny. And in fact, the podcast has turned out to be to sort of lean more towards the spiritual than it does towards the humorous. And that wasn't my intent either. But as I just, you know, sometimes you start on a project and you're not sure where the road's going to go and you open your mouth and you're not exactly sure what's going to come out. <laughs> but what started coming out was like, you know what, our connection to work, our connection to money is a big determinant of, of to our overall life satisfaction, and it's 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 money for some people, it's fame for others, or it's or it's uh, status or whatever, standing in the community. But any of those things, you know, that we that we give too much value in our life can can steer us down the wrong road if we're not aware of the role it's playing in our life, and that's. And that's really what I wanted to do is just have people think about what they want from money so they don't just bail on their great job at Facebook because they're frustrated and they think that, oh, I've got enough money to live on, therefore I don't need to work. We all need to work. Work is essential to keeping ourselves healthy and alive. The key is to figure out what kind of work you should be doing and how much of your life you're going to dedicate to that. So as we mentioned at the top of the show, your father died last week. Was he able to see you arrive? I mean, do you feel like you've arrived at that place of contentment that he get, got to see you mature into that adult and person you want to be? Yeah, I, I do. I, you know, I think, that, I think that he was very proud when he saw me arrive financially that even though he didn't, although he didn't really value it for himself or he didn't, he didn't obsess about it himself, I think that he was he was proud to see that i achieved financially 
he liked coming over to our big house. <laughs> and I and I took great pleasure in being able to have uh, a big enough house to be able to entertain, you know, the 30 people in our family, if you define brothers, sisters, husbands, kids, all that kind of stuff. I loved, I, I, I took pride in being a part of the family and, and, and having the kind of place where you can host gatherings and everybody can come and feel comfortable and, and have a good time. And, and he was proud of that too. I think the, I think the being more comfortable in my own skin stuff came, came later than that. And he did see it. I, you know, I think that, and I think that being there for your parents as they age is, you know, you lost your dad early. And so maybe you internalize this long before I did, but walking around old folks' homes, you know, for a certain period of time, you start to get, it starts to dawn on you when you're 42 or 45, like this is happening. This is, there's no way out, you know, that, that, that is pretty, you know, either you, either you kind of slowly decline over the next few decades, or you have a heart attack on a golf course, you know, like, one of these things is going to happen and you don't pick it. And I think as you, as you start to internalize that, as you start to really become aware of your own mortality, you just go, well, shit, man, it's not about me. <laughs> you know? And it's like, and I think my dad got to see that happen for me. And, and, you know, the work I've done on the podcast might have had contributed to that, but it's also just the, 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 the work I was doing being, alive this late that, you know, you start to, you start to forget about the way you thought about things when you were 22. Do you think that was one of your dad's biggest legacies to you? This idea that it isn't all about me in this outward looking at the world and who you are and what your impact is on it? Well, you know, I don't, I don't know if I'd say that I inherited that from him. I think those are things that you got to learn yourself they might be more intrinsic to certain people than to others, but it was, it was something that is far more permanent when, when you accept it as opposed to, you know, when you're, when you're taught it, like I said about the money thing earlier, yeah, my parents, they tell you all these things and you can, and when you finally realize it, you can look back and be like, Oh yeah, that's what she meant the whole time. But these are, these are lessons that I think for me, anyway, I had to arrive at them in my own time. There's nothing like a parent dying that makes you look at your own children and think about what knowledge and skills you're leaving them. Have you thought much about the legacy you're leaving your children? I at the funeral last Friday which was family only thanks to COVID. Thanks COVID for this wonderful <laughs> yet another benefit. Yeah. Yes, another benefit. There were I don't know 15 of us in the church or something like that, which is a tiny sampling of our overall family and friends set. But as I listen to my older brother eulogize my father, what I was thinking is I've got to I've got to be the best I can be. I I I want when it's time for my eulogy to be read that that my kids can feel every bit of bit of pride for having been my children that I felt for having been my dad's son. And it's really less about anything specific than it is about just the overall example that you want to leave behind, that you, you want your kids to be proud of you, that you, you want your kids to have absorbed your values through your example 
as opposed to anything that you've tried to teach them. That's how I felt. Well, Paul Allinger, I wanted to thank you for coming on the show and talking about your father and your life. The podcast is Crazy Money. Tell us what is coming up next in your life and where can people find you on the internet if they want to connect? <laughs> What's coming up next in my life is hopefully <laughs> hopefully a, a virus-free society in the next 12 to 18 months. But What's coming up on the podcast is uh, some, some great interviews with some good thinkers and authors this week. Well, like a lot of us, I'll be spending a lot of time at my house for the next 12 months. So I, I look forward to the day when comedy clubs reopen. In the meantime, I, I, I welcome visitors to my website, paulollinger.com. That's P-A-U-L-O-L-L-I-N-G-E-R.com. You can see links to the podcast, links to my comedy videos, or, and find my email where you can send me a note. This has been the Earn and Invest Podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I wanted to thank Paul Ollinger. That's a wrap. Thank you, Doc G, for having me. I've enjoyed our conversation. My conversation with Paul Ollinger really got me thinking. You see... He went out into the world, into the business world, he joined Facebook, and he built a financial life for himself, and yet something was missing, and he wasn't sure what, and it caused him to leave his job, and he retired early, but then there was this gap, there was this time where he knew he didn't want to be working anymore, but he also hadn't filled in that space with something that had true meaning to him. Eventually, he returned to something he had begun years before, comedy. And he delved deep in this idea of becoming a stand-up comic, of going back, rediscovering what he loved about it, and it gave him purpose and interest. At the same time, he also started a podcast And this makes me think a lot about my own life because I was faced with a similar problem. When I decided to leave medicine, the issue was I had this gap in my life and I didn't know what to fill it with. I knew that I had a deeper purpose. I had a deeper meaning, but I didn't know how to fulfill that. I didn't know how to live that deeper meaning and purpose Paul found comedy again, something that had been important to him before. I came back to this idea of communication, this idea of writing, blogging, and now podcasting. This is what was always under the surface, what was always struggling to come out. And I had always pushed it down because I always thought, you know, you can't make a living writing. I could make a solid, secure living as a doctor. But I didn't feel like I could use my more creative pursuits to fulfill my financial needs. So I never did. So like Paul, I came to the point where I no longer needed to worry about the financial needs as much. And I turned back to those creative aspects of my life, which were much more in tune with who I was, with my identity and what I thought my purpose in life should be. This podcast, Earn and Invest, is a direct reflection of that life work I did after I reached financial independence. 
But one thing I found is just creating the podcast wasn't enough. I started with Paul Thompson. The What's Up Next podcast was our first go at podcasting. And after Paul left and I rebranded to Earn and Invest, I came back to this idea of I know I want to do this podcast. I know that communication is important to me. But what about it really has meaning? And strangely enough, it was a question that Joe Salcihai from the Stacking Benjamins podcast posited me that really sent me in the right direction. As we were talking about how to make earn and invest better, he said something to me like, which podcasts do you most want to be like? How do you want to sound And what we'll do is we'll take a listen to that person or that podcast and figure out how to make your episodes better. And it was funny because I had never thought about such a thing. I had never really looked up to someone as a mentor, someone that I would pattern myself after. So this question really made me think deeply about what I want to accomplish, not just with this podcast, but also with life. And who do I want to sound like? And funny enough, the answer came to me fairly quickly. It was an answer I wasn't expecting. And a name and a sound popped up in my mind that I had no idea was even there. And that name was Terry Gross from NPR, the radio show Fresh Air. When I really thought about it, who I want to be, who I want to sound like is Terry Gross. And the reason why is I think she is one of the best interviewers in the world. And as, as I've gone farther and farther with this podcast, as I've made more and more episodes, what I really cherish is the art of the interview. I mean, that's what really gets me excited is to get someone on the show and ask the right, most perfect questions that get them to tell their story. Strangely enough, I find this more intoxicating than personal finance. I find it more intoxicating than writing about medicine, two things that I enjoy deeply. And yet that's what I find myself really drawn to. And if you'll notice, Earn and Invest has broadened out a little bit. We really started more as a financial independence podcast. We've really broadened to personal finance. And occasionally, I like to have guests on that have nothing to do with money to talk about life and mindset and those things that we think are important, like happiness and contentment. How to be a great interviewer. That's really what drives me. That's really what drives what you're listening to right now. And that's what I get excited about. That's why I do this podcast. It's probably what will keep driving me to continue and make it better and better. Because the better I make this podcast and the more people listen the better and better chances I'll get to interview people that have something to say that are interesting, the better I'll get a chance to give you, the audience, this insight into other people's lives by asking the questions that matter. Terry Gross, 
that's who I want to be like. And you know what I want even more than to be like Terry Gross? I would love to interview Terry Gross. I can think of a million questions I would like to ask her. And I think that's the fun of it. That's the excitement of waking up every day and thinking, how am I going to make, earn, and invest better than it was yesterday? How am I going to have better conversations, better topics, better interviews? And hopefully, that's why you guys enjoy listening to these episodes. Hopefully, you can hear the excitement in my voice when I talk to someone about maybe their money moves, maybe their life moves, maybe their mindset, any of those things. If I can bring out the story and deliver it to you in such a way that it has meaning, I've accomplished my goal. I've done what I've set out to do with Earn and Invest. So I'll admit, making this podcast is definitely about me. It's about my aspirations to become this amazing interviewer, this person like Terry Gross. But it's also about you, because I really want to take those skills and create something educational and informational and entertaining for you to consume on Mondays and Thursdays, for you to be excited about that. That's something worth getting up in the morning for. It's something worth leaving your job, becoming a little bit less structured, and a little bit more free to do. So as always, Thank you for listening. You are helping not only me fulfill my life purpose, but also grow in this apprenticeship of becoming the best interviewer I can be in order to provide something that you enjoy. I hope this wasn't too personal. I just don't like to talk about the run-of-the-mill things that everyone talks about. So I try to go a little deeper and, and have a little bit more of a heavier yeah. conversation. Yeah, no, well, I didn't. Uh, uh, I want to manage your listeners' expectations that it's going to be a hoot and a holler. But uh, <laughs> that it was. I enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, no, definitely very cool. Thank you very much for doing this. I appreciate it. Hey, man, my pleasure. Thank you for asking. As a longtime foreign correspondent. I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. 
It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts.